Hello, listeners. Hello. I'm Andrew. I'm Rachel. Mercury is playing with his toy, so hopefully he won't distract us. And <laughs> this is Countervortex. No, it's not. What is it? It's Armchair Apocrypha. That's right. This is Armchair Apocrypha, the show where armchair experts tell possibly true stories. Correct. Um, how have you been? I'm good. Good. You just, just ran a marathon this morning, didn't you? A 5K. Don't, 5K. not a marathon. A 5K. And I'm already feeling sore because I did not train for it whatsoever. Uh, you know you don't have to do that, right? Uh, yeah, I've been told that several times. <sighs> but it got me up and moving this morning. Yeah. And apparently after all the stuff I did, I, I've walked eight miles. That's impressive. Yes. So I feel not guilty about eating pizza. Yeah. <laughs> one, of the, uh, one of the girls in my group chat, posted the other day that she had run over 100 miles this week and i was like my body oh, hurts just reading just that. reading that that's painful <laughs> that sounds painful it sounds very painful um what else did you do this week you were just working this week huh yeah no i'm trying to think yeah i just worked good I have, times <laughs> i went to the dentist for the first time in about five years mm-hmm. on thursday and guess who has to get there wisdom teeth taken out me wait i've already done that <laughs> you yes i am not not very excited about that it'll be over before you know it i promise yeah uh, maybe <laughs> <laughs> um i have it scheduled for like the tuesday after next yeah um, and then i took a personal day for recovery Yes, so you I'll need to. Tuesday and uh, Tuesday afternoon and Wednesday uh, Wednesday off. all day off. Good. Yeah. That's my life. It's pretty um, exciting. Yeah. <laughs> we didn't do trivia this week, so we didn't. How did the um how did the new schedule thing that you're trying out go at work? Where you had to stay late? Um Oh, that's actually on this next episode, oh, okay. and it, or episode, on this next, next episode. week, and it's, it's, I'll explain it later, but basically I work in the morning, and I leave, and I come back at night. It's going to be stupid. It sounds pretty bad. Yeah, I'll be able to go to trivia. Okay. I should be able to go to trivia. Fair. Famous last words. <laughs> uh, do you want to get into this week's episode? Yep, I'm ready. Okay. Have you ever heard of Bernardine Dorn? No, but I like the name Bernardine. Bernardine. Uh, Bernardine Dorn was one of the members of the Weather Underground in the 70s. Weather? The Weather Underground. Did you they ever control Weather Underground? They did not, um, but they are considered kind of uh, superstars of American terrorism. Okay. If that makes uh, Weather any different. Yeah, you've never heard of them? I'm really surprised. So. Okay. Uh, so Bernardine Dorn was born <clears throat> Bernardine Ornstein in Milwaukee, Wisconsin in 1942. Okay. Uh, she grew up in Whitefish Bay, an upper middle class suburb of Milwaukee. Her father, Bernard, changed the family surname to Dorn when Bernardine was in high school. Her father was Jewish and her mother, Dorothy, was of Swedish background and a Christian scientist. Okay. Dorn graduated from Whitefish Bay High School where she was a cheerleader, treasurer of the Modern Dance Club and a member of the National Honor Society. Uh, she was also the editor of her school newspaper. Nice. So, from very, uh, very uh, elevated beginnings, mm-hmm. uh, she attended Miami University in Oxford, Ohio for one year, 
then transferred to the University of Chicago, where she graduated with honors with a BA in political science in 1963. Okay. Uh, I'm also a U- UFC uh, grad- and my parents went to Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. Did they? Yeah. Nice. Um, Dorn received her JD from the University of Chicago Law School in 1967. Uh, while attending law school, Dorn began working in support of MLK Jr. and became the first student organizer for the National Lawyers Guild. Nice. She has a lot of credentials behind her yeah, name. Yeah, apparently. <laughs> Where'd you um, get your JD? <laughs> I did not get my JD. Uh-huh. Um, hold on a second, I just lost it. Uh, Dorn became one of the members of the Revolutionary Youth Movement, a radical wing of Students for Democracy, in the late 1960s. Dorn, along with 10 other SDS members associated with the RYM, issued on June, uh, June 18th, 1969, a 16,000-word manifesto entitled, You Don't Need a Weatherman to Know Which Way the Wind Blows. Oh, I now I get it. Yeah. Uh, the title came from a Bob Dylan song called Subterranean Homesick Blues, which I'm, I know it. Do you know that one? I'd, pr- I'd have to hear it. I'm okay. not really good with song titles. I'm sorry. Yeah. Or do you want to sing a little <laughs> bit? I'm, I'm okay. Okay. Uh, if I can, no. Uh, <laughs> let's not do that. Uh, the, manifest, the manifesto st- uh, stated that the goal of revolution is the destruction of U.S. imperialism and the achievement of a classless world world communism the man the manifesto concluded with the revolutionary youth movement must also lead the effective organization needed to survive and to create another battlefield of the revolution a revolution is a war when the movement in this country can defend itself primarily against total repression it will be part of the revolutionary war this will require a cadre organization effective secrecy and self self-reliance among the cadres okay the manifesto also asserted that African Americans were a black colony within the U- U.S. government uh, that was doomed to overextend itself, um, and the RYM was needed to quicken this process. Dorn said, "The best thing that we can be doing for ourselves, as well as for the Black Panthers and the revolutionary Black liberation struggle, is to build a fucking white revolutionary movement." Mm-hmm. Uh, the ninth annual National SDS Conference was held at the Chicago Coliseum on June 18th to the 22nd, 1969, and the SDS collapsed uh, in a revolutionary youth movement-led upheaval. Soon after, the revolutionary youth movement became known as the Weathermen. Hmm. Dorn led the Weathermen faction in the SDS fight and continued to be a leader afterward. Uh, An FBI informant, Larry Grathwall, who was with the Weathermen from autumn 1969 through spring 1970, considered her one of the two top leaders of the organization, along with Bill Ayers, who she would eventually marry. Okay. On May 26, 1968, as a speaker for the National Lawyers Guild, Dorn said she was filing a motion in federal court asking for an injunction to halt any disciplinary action that was being taken against student activists and represented students from Columbia University who were striking and protesting. On June 14, 1968, Dorn was elected the Interorganizational Secretary of SDS and once elected, was asked if she was a socialist. She replied, I consider myself a revolutionary communist. Okay. From August 30th to September 1st, 1968, Dorn visited Yugoslavia. Her involvement with SDS and the political advocacy uh, stretched beyond the United States, as she and other SDS leaders had met with representatives from North Vietnam and the National Liberation Front of South Vietnam and Budapest um, to discuss peace talks. 
She and a delegation from the SDS also traveled to Cuba via Mexico City and later arrived in Canada via Cuban vessel on August 16, 1969. On the night of October uh, 1, 1968, Dorn spoke at a meeting in Chicago to condemn Chicago Mayor Daley's orders to attack protesters during the 1968 Democratic National Convention. Then, from October 11th to the 13th, she and the SDS held a national meeting at the University of Colorado Boulder, wherein Dorn was a speaker addressing concerns about where the movement was headed and what involvement they could expect as governmental tensions mounted and the student movement splintered into factions. On October 11th, 1968, Dorn suggested that she would expand the movement to non-students and do all that was necessary to complete the job of attacking, exposing, and destroying capitalism. Dorn continued to give speeches on behalf of the SDS and the Weathered Underground and attend leadership conferences from both organizations. On January 29th and the 30th of 1969, in recognition of the 10th anniversary of the Cuban Revolution, the, the University of Washington held a Cuba teach-in where Dorn was a speaker on campus. A month later, at a press conference at the regional headquarters of SDS in Chicago, Dorn spoke of the plans that uh, they were under Dorn spoke of the plans that were underway to attack college graduation ceremonies across the country, saying our presence will be known at the graduation ceremonies where the big people will come as speakers. By that time, Dorn was now known as a National Interim Committee member of the SDS and a member of the uh, Weatherman Group. Um, there's a long list of Weatherman actions. I'm not going to read them all. Okay. Um, are you giving us the hot ones? I'm, I'm going to give you uh, a couple of them. Um, the first one, uh, Dorn was the principal signatory on the Weather Underground's declaration of a state of war in May 1970 that formally declared war on the U.S. government and completed, a group's, completed the group's transformation from political advocacy to violent action. She recorded the declaration and sent a transcript of a tape of recordings to the New York Times. Dorn also co-wrote with Bill Ayers and published the subversive manifesto Prairie Fire in 1974 and partic participated in the covertly filmed Underground in 1976. In late 1975, the Weather Underground put out an issue of a magazine, <laughs> Osawatomi, uh, which carried an article by Dorn titled Our Class Struggle, described as a speech given to the organization's cadres on September 2nd of that year. In the article, Dorn clearly stated support for communist ideology. Uh, we are building a communist organization to be part of the forces which build a revolutionary communist party to lead the working class to seize power and build socialism. We must further the study of Marxism-Leninism within the WUO, the World Weather Underground Organization. Uh, the struggle for Marxism-Leninism is the most significant development in our recent history. We, we discovered through our own experiences what revolutionaries all over the world have found, that Marxism-Leninism is the science of revolution, the revolutionary ideology of the working class, and our guide to the struggle. I don't believe that. I don't either. <laughs> uh, according to a 1974 FBI study of the group, Dorn's article signaled a development of uh, a developing commitment to Marxism-Leninism that had been that had not been clear in the group's previous statements, despite their trips to Cuba and contact with Vietnamese communists there. On August 22, 1969, Dorn was arrested in Chicago and charged with possession of drugs. Oh, shit. The defense argued that the Chicago police had conducted an illegal search of the car in which he was a pa passenger, which led Judge Kenneth R. Wendt of the Narcotics Court of Chicago to dismiss the charges. 
on September 20th, 1969, an anti-Vietnam rally at the Davis Cup tennis tournament in Cleveland, police arrested Dorn and 20 other persons on charges of disorderly conduct. On September 26, 1969, Dorn was arrested again in Chicago during a rally in support of the eight men accused of conspiracy concerning the riot during the 1968 Democratic National Convention who were being tried on riot conspiracy charges. Snap. Dorn was next arrested on October 9th of 1969. That's like four in one year. Mm-hmm. A lot of conspiracies. Yeah. Uh, Dorn was next arrested on October 9th, 1969 by the Chicago police during a rally for the women's faction of the Weatherman Group and was later released on a $1,000 bond. On October 31st, 1969, a grand jury indicted 22 people, including Dorn, for their involvement with the trial of the Chicago Eight, and she was again indicted on April 2nd, 1970, when a federal grand jury indicted 12 members of the Weatherman Underground Group on conspiracy charges in violation of anti-riot acts during the Days of Rage. All of these convictions were reversed on November 21st, 1972, by the United States Court of Appeals for the Seventh, uh, Seventh Circuit, on the basis the judge was biased in his refusal to permit defense attorneys to screen prospective jurors for cultural and ra- racial biases. Yeah. Due to the increasing volatility of the weather underground led by Dorn, on October 14, 1970, Bernardine Ray Dorn was added to the Federal Bureau of Investigation's top 10 most wanted fugitives list. Uh, she was only removed in December 1973 after District Court Judge Damon Keith dismissed the case against the weathermen. That dismissal was followed shortly by another when, on January 3rd, 1974, Judge Julius Hoffman dismissed a four-year-old case against 12 members of the Weatherman faction of the Students for Democratic uh, Society, including Dorn. She had been charged with leading the riotous Days of Rage. Um, During this time, while she was on the run from the police, Dorn used many aliases, including Bernadine Ray Ornstein, H.T. Smith, and Marion Delgado married another weatherman leader who I've already mentioned a couple times, Bill Ayers. Mm-hmm. Uh, she has two children with Bill Ayers. Um, let's see. They were uh, blah, blah, blah. In the late 1970s, the weatherman group split into two factions, the May 19th Coalition and the Prairie Fire Collective, with Dorn and Ayers in the latter, the Prairie Fire Collective. Uh, this group favored coming out of hiding with members facing the criminal charges against them, while the May 19th coalition remained in hiding. A decisive factor in Dorn's coming out of the hiding were her concerns for her children. Mm-hmm. The couple turned the, uh, themselves into authorities in 1980. While some charges related to their activities with the weathermen were dropped due to prosecu- prosecutorial misconduct, uh, which is related to COINTELPRO, which I've covered on this podcast before, Dorn pleaded guilty to charges of aggravated battery and bail jumping, for which she was put on probation. After refusing to testify against ex-weatherman Susan Rosenberg in an armed robbery case, she served just less than a year in prison. Hmm. For armed robbery? Mm-hmm. And aggravated assault. Um, I did armed robbery. I served <laughs> five. Damn. I, I'm pretty sure that the prosecutors were trying to get her on, like, a few decades of charges. And so when she got out in less than a year... She probably saw that as a success. Um, shortly after turning themselves in, Doran and Ayers became legal guardians of Chesa Budin, the son of former members of the Weather Underground, Kathy Budin and David Gilbert. Um, after the couple, Kathy Budin and David Gilbert, were convicted of murder for their roles in the 1981 armored car robbery. 
in, uh, from 1984 to 1988, Dorn was employed by the Chicago law, law firm of Sidley Austin, where she was hired by Howard Trianons, uh, the head of the firm who knew Thomas G. Ayers, Dorn's father-in-law. We often hire friends, Trianons told a reporter for the, from the Chicago Tribune, mm -hmm. which I believe is called nepotism. I believe it is. Yeah. I believe you're correct. However, Dorn had not been admitted to the New York or Illinois bar, even though she had passed both bar exams, because she had not submitted an application to the New York Supreme Court's Committee on Character and Fitness. She was similarly turned down by the Illinois Ethics Committee because of her criminal record. Trannon said of the Illinois rejection, Dorn, get in, Dorn didn't get a law license because she's stubborn. Because she's stubborn. She would not say that she was sorry. In 1991, she was hired by Northwestern University uh, School of Law as an adjunct professor of law mm -hmm. with the title Clinical Associate Professor of Law. She was one of the founders of the Children uh, and Family Justice Center, which supports the legal needs of adolescents and their families. Um, she left Northwestern Law on August 31st, 2013. Because Dorn was hired as an adjunct, um, her appointments did not need to be approved by the faculty. When law school officials were asked whether or not the dean hired Dorn or the board of trustees approved the hiring, the school issued a statement in response stating, while many would take issue with views Ms. Dorn exposed during the 1960s, her career as, at the law school is an example of a person's ability to make a difference in the legal system. Dorn now serves on the board of numerous human rights committees. Uh, since 2002, she has served as a visiting law faculty at the Vrije Universiteit at Amsterdam. Her legal work has focused on reforming the much criticized juvenile court system in Chicago and on advocating for human rights at the international level. The end? The end. <laughs> uh, she was in the news in 2008 uh, because John McCain and Sarah Palin had to denounce her. They had to? They had to. Apparently they knew each other in law school or something. Oh. Um, uh, she says that she still sees herself as a radical. Um, I believe that. And she's said in 2010 of uh, Glenn Beck's Restoring Honor Rally in D.C., uh, you, have white arms, you have white people armed demanding the end of the Obama presidency. The real terrorist is the American government. State terrorism unleashed against the world. The end. The end. <laughs> That was good. Thank you. I enjoyed that. I think there's an ice cream truck outside. There is an ice cream truck on our, uh, go get on our one. street. Give me a second. Um, do you want me to pause the recording so you can go get ice no, cream? I don't have any cash on me. <laughs> I don't need ice cream. Okay. So what do you have for us this week? Have you heard of Nip Gies? What? Isn't that how you pronounce that what story? Is it? Nip. Yep. Nip. It's either geez or guys. guys. I'm not sure which. She's, well, she is the lady or one of the people who helped hide Anne Frank and her family and others. Okay. And I was going to put together this whole thing, but they wasn't too much. But this one article basically is an excerpt from her book. So this is going to be all told through her story. Okay. So I'm going to use the I pronouns and things like that. So Sounds this good. is her story. Her story. I was born in Vienna as Hermann Sentrucic. We won't worry about that because that's not her name anymore. <laughs> um, on February 15th, 1909. 
my parents did not have the means to take proper care of me, so that was an unfortunate start. <laughs> She's it's, not wrong. That's a bad beginning, yeah. The lack of food as a result of the First World War meant that I became undernourished and was often ill, but in the autumn of 1920, so she is 19, I was suddenly presented with the opportunity to spend three months in the Netherlands together with other malnourished Austrian and Hungarian working class children to regain strength with a foster family in Leiden. So that was a fortunate twist, I dare say. My foster parents, heeding the doctor's advice, then decided to make me part of their family permanently. With the situation in Austria remaining as it was, my parents realized that I would be better off in the, ne in the, the Netherlands than I could ever be in Austria, so they agreed. Fortune again smiled on me, and then we moved from Leiden to Amsterdam, where I felt at home immediately. Good. I don't know. So the 1930s, so now we're in the 1930s. 1930s. We've, had, we've asked for about 10 years. Okay. Um, were difficult years for those seeking jobs, but once again, luck was on my side. An upstairs neighbor told me that a certain company she knew had a temporary vacancy for office assistant. Okay. I went there and talked to the owner of the company, a German na man from Frankfurt. His name was Otto Frank, and Frank's father. Right. Of course, there were several candidates for the job, but again, I was fortunate. My native tongue was German, so I got the job. And what's more, I was allowed to stay even after the sick employee that I was replacing recovered and returned to the office. Nice. It's kind of nice, yeah. In 1938, so now we're like eight years, mm -hmm. my native country of Austria was annexed by Nazi Germany and renamed as Ostmark. Less nice. Yeah. Um, less, yes, it is less <laughs> nice. Sad to say, many of my fellow countrymen supported this. Boo. Boo. <laughs> On May 10th, 1940, Germany invaded the Netherlands, and after five days of bitter fighting, we were occupied. A problem arose when I went to get married in 1941. My passport had expired, and if I didn't marry a Dutchman, I would have to return to Vienna, which is not where you wanted to go at that time. And even if I had married a Dutchman, I'd approve my Aryan, non-Jewish, descendant, which can only be done in the town of my birth, Vienna. The Germans said that there was not enough time to satisfy all the formalities. Either I had refused to join a Nazi association of women and girls, and the Nazis had noted that fact. Um, of course they did. Yeah, and I was deliberately hindered. If I hadn't had Uncle Anton in Vienna who moved heaven and earth to obtain an approved proof of Aryan birth, but fate again smiled on me. Everything worked out. And on July 16th, or yeah, July 16th, 1941, Jan, guys, and I got married. Cheers to Uncle Anton. Yeah, thanks, Uncle Anton. So my husband became a member of the resistance group that worked alongside the national organizations to, to assist hiders that arranged all manner of things for people that wanted to go into hiding or already were in hiding. Yeah. Oops. He never wanted to talk about it, but he must have saved scores of people. Ugh. As for me, I got actively involved in the hiding of the families Frank Van Pels and Dr. Peffer in the rear annex of our office in Prisongrat, as did my husband, by the way. I think they had, I don't remember if it says it on here, but I think that they had eight people all together, like the Franks. Yeah. It was not just that family. It was like yeah. another family and a couple or something like yeah. that. I think it was eight people. Or something along those lines. Um, following the betrayal on... Uh, doo -doo -doo. Following the betrayal. Following the betrayal on August 4th, 1944, the annex was cleared out and a number of helpers were arrested. So 
yeah, the Franks and all of them were in there for like two and a half years. They were literally there up until the very fucking end. That's yeah. what kills me, is they were there and then got sent away, and they were only in the camps for like less than half a year yeah. before they were would have been liberated if they had survived. It Well, only Frank did, I think. Otto, sorry. Otto, yeah. Yeah. I think, nope, all the girls died. All the girls died. Yeah. So... Following the betrayal on August 4th, 1944, the annex was cleared out and a number of helpers were arrested. This was awful since being arrested in connection with helping Jewish hiders meant deportation to a concentration camp and certain death. But then, in an incredible way, my luck turned again. The Nazi that was responsible for deporting the hiders and, the, and their helpers was named Karl Josef Seilbarer, an arrogant and, yes, Austrian man from Vienna. And he just wasn't having his day for... While interrogating Otto Frank, he discovered that Mr. Frank had fought for Germany in the First World War and that he held a higher army rank than himself. Hmm. Um, Sauerbach didn't quite salute him, but he did offer to do everything calmly. Nice. Then it was my turn. The Austrian barked at me, and are you not ashamed of yourself for helping Jews? I said that I came from Vienna just like he Salborro hesitated and stomped through the room. Finally, he decided that I was allowed to stay in the office. Out of personal sympathy, he said. But he added that he would be coming back and warned me that fleeing was not an option. My colleague, Bep Boskul, was also allowed to stay. That was not the case for the helpers Johannes Kleinman and Victor Kulger, however. They were deported along with the eight hiders. After some time, I was afraid that the Nazis would come back either later the same day or the next day. I can't quite remember. I entered the secret annex with Bep and stockroom manager Von Marine. There we gathered together all the loose papers and books belonging to Anne. Without reading them, we stored them in the drawer of my desk, thinking we could give everything back to Anne after the war. Ugh. The craziest plan that we came up with after the raid on the annex was that I, after collecting money from everyone in the company, would go to the headquarters to the security service to bribe the Nazis into releasing the hiders and helpers. With wobbly knees, I made my way there. In the building of the SD, I met the Austrian that had supervised the arrest in the annex, and he told me to go upstairs. On the landing, I saw a door half open, and I entered. In a bare room stood a table with a radio and around it stood a group of high-ranking Nazi soldiers. The voice that came from the radio was English. They were listening to the BBC. I should have probably been arrested right away, but they were too astonished to react, and I fled from the building as fast as I could. The plan had failed, but my personal lucky charm, I left the SD headquarters unharmed, had not deserted me. In the spring of 1945, the war was finally over, and the waiting began for those who would return from the concentration camps. Of the eight hiders in the secret annex, only Otto Frank returned. As soon as it became clear that Anne had perished, I gave her father all her papers with the words, This is the legacy of your daughter, Anne. Ugh. Aww. The rest of the story is well known. My husband kept silent about his noble deeds, and Anne became, after her death, what she had wanted to become in life, a famous writer. I consider it a tremendous honor in later years to represent Anne in speaking at schools and fully packed auditoriums all over the world. It almost makes me cry. Um, looking back at my life, it seems that fortune forever perched on my shoulder. It is the red thread that runs throughout. I'm fully justified in saying this is the way things were meant to be for me. I've had all the luck in the world, 
perhaps I was guided, I do not know, but I am anyhow very grateful. So that's just like a little blip on like her story, yeah. but that was probably the only website that went into the most detail yeah. about. And then you could click on videos, but I don't have time of her like telling stories and all that stuff. But if you've read Anne Frank's book, then you also kind of get that in her stories as well. Have you read Anne Frank? It's It's been a long time. I read it in middle school, yeah. so it's been well over like 15 years or something. But it was just, I thought, really worded well. Yeah. And it was kind of short and to the point, unfortunately. There wasn't yeah. anything longer. Um, but I'd always, I couldn't remember why, or I don't think it explained in Anne Frank's book, obviously, because it was afterwards, like, because people who usually hid them also were sent, but I was trying to remember how, I remember that the people who hid them weren't sent away, and I was trying to remember why, but now I know why. Yeah. It makes me wonder about that Nazi soldier, like, was he having second thoughts? I don't know. Or was he just a really big fan of his country of Vienna? I'm not sure. Um, do, do, do. So... And they call, like, August 4th the day that it all happened, like, a day of remembrance for those, for everyone in that kind of, like, situation. Yeah. So, that's Mietke's, I believe, she died at the age of 100 in 2010, wow. by the way. That's impressive. Yes. 110. Or, sorry, 100 years old, 2010. <laughs> Jesus. Um, that was really sweet. Yeah. Um, a few couple of fun things is like um, when purchasing food for the people in hiding, she avoided suspicion by visiting several different suppliers a day. She never carried more than uh, what one shopping bag could hold or yeah. what she could hide under her coat. She kept the workers from being suspicious by trying not to enter the hiding place during office hours. Um her husband also helped by providing ration cards, which he had obtained illegally. Uh, rations for getting, like, groceries. Right. Um, blah, blah, It says at their apartment close to where the secret annex was where they were, uh, Niep and her husband also had an anti-Nazi university student. So I just kept hearing it. So if you want to hear a little bit more about the capture of the day. Um, uh, yeah, if you got it. A little bit. It's just a snippet from Wikipedia. But on the morning of August 4th, 1944, um, sitting at her desk, Miep looked up and saw a man pointing a gun towards her. Law school and Kleinman said, stay put, don't move. The families had been betrayed and the, um, the police arrested the people hidden at this place. Um, that's really all it says is someone told on them and it doesn't show how. Yeah. But the next day... Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Thinking Sideways podcast has a uh, has an episode about the mystery of who told on the Franks. Yeah, because this it doesn't really go into it. So I think that someone spilled the beans and they just like were just yeah. like all happened like well, that. We we don't know who did it. Is the thing. We know that somebody. Yeah, told yeah, on them, but, but we, we don't, don't know who it is. Who it is. Yeah. What motherfucker did it? Yeah. That's so unfortunate. Yeah. But. Yeah, I thought that's, I just, you know, my World War II story, so <laughs> I thought that was a really good one. Yeah. 
So there we go. Mercury has jumped up on the couch next to us and yep. is now begging us for attention. Um, so we should probably get out of here in a minute. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was good. Um, I kind of like telling the story in the first person too. Yeah. It's something different. It's the, I think it's the first time we've done that. Yeah. At least on my end. I think it, you haven't done that. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right. Uh, that's our episode for this week. Um, we're going to get out of here. Um, you can find us online. Our website is absentactivismarts.wordpress.com. Uh, both of my books are up on Amazon now in both uh, uh, paperback and Kindle editions. Um, you can find the links on our website. Uh, we've got artwork from Katie White. Um, she's open for commissions. Feel free to send her an email if you've got anything that you want to do. Um, we've got music from Chet Osman and uh, Joshua Paul Brooks. Um, we are on Facebook at Absinthe Activism Arts. Uh, we are at, on uh, Instagram at Absinthe Activism Arts, but I haven't figured out how to do that through the Facebook page yet. Um, we are on Twitter at Absinthe Act Arts. Mm -hmm. uh, I finally figured out TweetDeck, so I can now share things on Twitter. Nice. Um, we have a Patreon if you are interested in giving us money. Um, it's Absinthe Activism Arts. Um, I am see a theme here. You th yeah, it's we try to keep it consistent. <laughs> so uh, if you just search for Absinthe Activism Arts, you should find us. Uh, I am on the Fediverse at uh, I'm AWM Rights on Mastodon and uh, uh, Diaspora. Um, if you are an anti-vaxxer, please do not follow me on either of those sites, or I will block you. Um, I'm also on Instagram if you want to see pictures of Mercury yes, at AWM Rights. And I think that is all of our stuff. Sounds good. Um, we'll see you next week. We love you mm -hmm. and take care. <laughs>